Hello and welcome to The Last Best Hope, the podcast that examines America from the outside in. I'm Adam Smith. And good morning to those just joining us here in New York. We have breaking news from Buckingham Palace this morning. Prince Philip, the husband of Queen Elizabeth, the Duke of Edinburgh, a fixture of British life for decades, has passed away. The death of Prince Philip prompted one of my American friends to message me, not entirely sarcastically, I don't think, with condolences. I told him I was maintaining a stiff upper lip. Only a few weeks earlier, Oprah's interview with Meghan and Harry once again brought the soap opera of the House of Windsor into American primetime. It was billed as a tell-all from a couple now outside the confines of the British monarchy. I mean, that's the sad irony of the last four years as I've advocated for so long for women to use their voice. And then I was silent. Were you silent? Or were you silenced? The latter. Judging from my Twitter feed, the general reaction among Democrats was to admire Meghan's candor about her mental health struggles and to share Oprah's outrage at the royal family's apparent casual racism. Meghan, the innocent American abroad, cruelly treated by an archaic institution. But here in America, my feeling is I think that we as Americans love her now. You know? Conservatives, on the other hand, seemed much less impressed by the sight of privileged Hollywood royalty complaining that British royalty wasn't emotionally literate enough. Indeed, the Oprah interview prompted a slew of right-wing opinion pieces offering sympathy to the long-suffering Queen. It's just ridiculous. You know, I, you see, am a victim, says the princess. So what's the long history of this American fascination with royalty? And what does it tell us about American culture? Well, joining me now to discuss these questions are Frank Prohaska, a senior research fellow at Somerville College, Oxford, and the author of, among many other books, The Eagle and the Crown, Americans and the British Monarchy. And Ariane Chernock, associate professor of history at Boston University, author most recently of The Right to Rule and the Rights of Women, published by Cambridge University Press in 2019 about Queen Victoria and the women's movement. Frank, um, I'll begin with you, um, if if I may. Up until the very eve of the Revolutionary War, the great majority of people in the British colonies in North America were loyal subjects of the crown, even as they were resisting acts of parliament. So how did Americans psychologically and culturally make that shift from being subjects of the king to being Republicans in a very short space of time? Probably the Declaration of Independence is a crucial force behind this. Uh, Jefferson demonized George III, of course, on a number of accounts as a tyrant and the rest of it. It's quite interesting how it changes back. The relationship is one of love-hate over a very long period, and it was more hatred at the beginning after the revolution. But then love takes over, it seems to me, by the reign of Queen Victoria. One of the interesting things about George III is uh, when I looked up the obituaries, the American obituaries of George III, I was surprised to find that 25 or 30 papers, most of them in New England, spoke positively about George III. What happened, of course, uh, between the revolution and his death 
which took place in 1820, was the French Revolution. And compared to Robespierre or even Napoleon, George III looked like a good family man and a Christian. So there was a shift in, in focus to on George III. But he was still wheeled out to frighten the children on July 4th every year. Ariane, it does, does, that, um, does that picture that Frank's drawn uh, make sense to you of, 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 early, of Americans in the early republic finding it's, it's not quite a buyer's remorse that Frank's describing there, but it's a sense of loss along with uh, the gains of creating the republic. If that's true, what was it about monarchy that Americans missed? Well, there's a, there's a lot that they missed about the monarchy. I think it's the pomp and circumstance, though, that's really crucial to this. The court life was central to the colonial imagination. And even though they clearly wanted to part ways with monarchy, it was hard to give that up. There's this emotional core to the monarchy, a sense of custom tradition that undergirds the whole institution. It's that ritualized aspect of it that Americans had a really hard time reinventing, starting from scratch. What do you do when you don't have that pageantry? Uh, to rely on the calendar. And we see in how the founding fathers imagined the presidency that there was a strong desire to maintain some of those customs and traditions, even while disavowing many of the political aspects. Frank, I mean, George III um, may have been described as a, a tyrant by Thomas Jefferson, but he, he wasn't um, a tyrant by any uh, real historical uh, measure, because he didn't, uh, whatever he may have wished to be, he didn't have that uh, constitutional authority, of course, did he by then? But whatever constitutional authority George III had, the monarchy continued to, to evolve during the 19th century in its relationship to the government and to parliament in Westminster. It, are the, was the changing political status of the monarchy within the British constitution after the American Revolution. Was that something that Americans were aware of? Was it something they were interested in? Did it become easier to admire the royal family once the royal family was clearly no longer in a position to behave tyrannically? Well, I don't think they ever behaved tyrannically in the reign of George III. Indeed, George Washington had far more power politically than George III ever exercised. But you're right, there was a shift in opinion that takes place after 1815, 1820s. And uh, as the political power of the monarchy waned, uh, the American people started seeing the British monarch as a part of a family. And as Walter Badgett, the great journalist in the 19th century, wrote in the English Constitution, that uh, a family on the throne is an interesting idea because it brings the idea of sovereignty down to the level of the common man. And that's one of the reasons why we revere the monarchy, because it is understandable, as Ariane was saying. Uh, it's understandable as a family going through the usual things that all families go through, ups and downs and so on. And it provides us these sites of memory historically as well, coronations and so on. The spectacle of the monarchy is very important. It's interesting, the Duke of Edinburgh is, is an interesting transitional character, in my view, taking the long view of the monarchy. I think when he was a child, he probably was part of a tradition that sought the monarchy. And no, the idea of nobility was proud and had political power to some extent. But like all of other members of the royal family, once you're involved in it, you collapse into niceness. So instead of uh, doing anything dramatic with his life, he spent it all opening bazaars. And this is what they all do. 
as Prince William said in an interview to, to uh, the Charity Commission a few years ago, charity is what we do. And the Duke of Edinburgh has spent most of his life doing it. I, I want to ask you um, both about Queen Victoria and her place in this story. Uh, Ariane, Frank has just mentioned there the idea of the British royal family as a family, and that's, and it seems to me, to be an important conceptual transition from the old sort of, let's say, the early modern idea of, 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 of monarchy. So, Ariane, you first. Can you talk about uh, the, the place of Queen Victoria in the, the American imagination? It's a really important conceptual shift, as you're suggesting. Frank mentioned the ways in which George III made the family, his family, central to the throne. Victoria built on that and and really took it to the next level so that Victoria, Albert, their nine children, these were central to the national imagination. They were a family. And that emotional tie I was alluding to earlier only intensified. I always love to tell my students, who think everything begins with Princess Diana, that <laughs> they need to go back and look at American coverage of Victoria's coronation or her wedding to Albert in 1840, because it was just, uh, the press went gaga. People couldn't get enough detail about what Victoria was wearing and how Albert had met Victoria. And, and this continues. It's not just about Victoria. It's about her children. When her eldest son, Albert Edward, got married, um, in the 1860s, there was, there was a significant amount of American interest in gossip. Um, and if more people could have gotten to Britain to see the ceremony, I'm sure they would have. Frank, um, Ariane's just mentioned the, the Prince of Wales, the eldest son of Queen Victoria. Of course, he visited the United States, didn't he, in 1860, right on the brink of the American Civil War. This is pretty momentous thing for a the, the heir to the throne to, to visit the, the former colonies. What was the reaction of Americans to the physical presence of this young man, this eligible bachelor, as he was then, on American soil? Well, it was, it was quite considerable. Uh, he was spreading goodwill as something that people thought he was good at. He arrived in Detroit from the, he was in Canada. The main purpose of this visit to North America was to Canada. But President Buchanan wrote to Queen Victoria saying, would he be willing to come to the United States? And she thought this was a quite a good idea. Uh, he was carefully prepared by Prince Albert for what he was to do and not to do. And uh, he arrived in Detroit and was met by 5,000 Americans who hailed him to the skies, and uh, he he had to have a, a body double to get into his hotel, apparently. From there, he went to Chicago, and then went to Iowa to kill a few birds, and after that, he went to St. Louis, Cincinnati, Washington, where he visited. He, he went down to Mount Vernon, as they all do, to pay tribute to uh, George Washington, and uh, they all do that, and that's terribly important. There was an important moment there when the American Republicans saw, not the Republican Party, obviously, but Republicans generally, saw the Prince of Wales bowing at the foot of George Washington's monument there. He then went on to have parties and dances and so on. He went to New York, where he was widely fated. And uh, one of the most interesting things about it is a number of plutocratic daughters who thought they might have a chance to marry him. And so he was introduced to a large number of women, American women, 
But uh, according to rumor, he left them behind after the dances and went to a brothel. But we don't know that for certain. But uh, he was highly faded, and he came back just before the election. And uh, he was told not to talk about politics, obviously. Intriguingly, when Albert died in 1861, President Lincoln wrote a letter of condolence to Queen Victoria in which he referred to the visit of the Prince of Wales and how important that was in bringing to light the kindred peoples to the, of, of the United States and Britain. And, it, and the American's moral compass, as he puts it, drew, comes from the mother country. That's very intriguing. And this whole idea of uh, Anglo-Saxonism, which is building up in the mid and late 19th century, is part of this tradition. And Queen Victoria, coming back to her, uh, was seen as a, a mother figure, she was called queen by any number of American correspondents, and she represented the Anglo-Saxon tradition. It's um, I've actually got Lincoln's letter uh, of condolence in front of me here, uh, and as you say, she he mentions. Uh, by the way, I I don't think as a I don't think Lincoln wrote this himself, right? This is not this doesn't strike me as Lincoln's hand. I, my guess is that Seward or maybe Nicolay or one of his secretaries wrote this. But in any case, it had Lincoln's name at the bottom. But but he says there, as you, as you say, he specifically mentions the visit of the Prince of Wales uh, and says it is for this reason uh, uh, that, that your commitment to cultivating the, French, uh, the friendship on our part, it's for this reason that you're honoured on this side of the Atlantic as a friend of the American people. That's, it really is. That's quite a statement, isn't it, to, to make in the in a in a republic and Ariane, the the um visit of the prince of wales i mean the the frank mentions the daughters of of plutocrats in new york wanting to marry him but the, i mean this was this was serious wasn't it i mean the newspapers were were full of this but they were confidently predicting that he would uh, sail back to england with an american bride well it ties back to the point frank made earlier about the love hate relationship that americans have had with with britain and the monarchy as a central institution, uh, you know, representing the nation. There was an opportunity when the Prince of Wales came to America to perform democracy and to demonstrate a superior or preferential political culture to Britain because they knew that they had a captive audience back in Britain that would be covering the tour as well. Um, at the same time, though, of course, there was this utter enchantment um, and romanticization of the monarchy, um, and it had that strangely gendered dimension to it as well, that fantasy already of, of you know, becoming the princess was very entrenched. It's interesting that the Americans have suffered from royal deprivation since the revolution. And so there was always an eagerness to get an American prince or princess somehow along the, along the way. And this was true when Edward VIII came as Prince of Wales in 1919 and 1924, no doubt uh, any number of other royals have uh, had, had such expectations from Americans. We'll talk in a moment, I guess, about, about Meghan, who, as it were, achieved that goal. But, I mean, even, even going back into the 19th century then, if there's an American princess, is the idea that that will make the British royal family more American? Is that a way for Americans to possess the royal family? Uh, will it ch is it the implicit assumption that it will change the royal family if there's an if an American marries into it. Ariane, uh, 
I don't know if the idea was to change the royal family per se, but certainly it would have cemented this tie that Americans were really eager to cultivate almost as soon as the revolution ended. I always say that the War of 1812 was the exception, um, not the rule when we look at the long 19th century and transatlantic relations. The fact that the, the monarchy at this point was, I think, beginning to be truly seen as ceremonial um, made the political dimensions of this, I think, a little more complicated. Hmm. And and Frank, on the side of the on the part of the royal family, how did they try? And you know, looking forward into the twentieth century, if you like, how did they try to manage their image in the United States? How important was it to the royal family? How aware were they of the need to the desirability of maintaining popularity in the republic? And how did they? try to manage their image in order to affect that. Yes. Well, this was increasingly important in the 19th century. Queen Victoria was very sensitive to relations with the United States, and that's one reason why she was happy for the Prince of Wales to visit in 1860. The members of the royal family who come over increasingly as time passes are seen as ambassadors, and they're advised by the foreign office as often as not as to what they should say and how they should present themselves. But from the Queen's point of view, from the royal family's point of view, is to indoctrinate Americans in a warmness to the British monarchy, because uh, they know that politics in Britain is uncertain. And uh, it's another defense against Republican sentiment to have Americans on board. I mean, Frank, you've, you've argued in your uh, scholarship over the years that on the one hand, Britain is a disguised republic. On the other hand, the United States is a disguised monarchy. What are, you, what are you getting at when you're using that paradoxical, intriguing terminology? <laughs> well, I think there's some truth in it. I mean, this isn't perhaps the way the monarchy sees itself, but the, the queen is a hereditary president, basically. Nobody believes the queen rules the country. And a monarchy means, that by definition, the rule of one. There hasn't been a monarchy like that in Britain since, I don't know, the 17th century. And the idea that the president is a disguised monarch is just the opposite, because I don't think that most of them want to see themselves in those terms, apart from Trump and one or two others historically. So it's, uh, it's an interesting, intriguing idea. Uh, it hasn't been widely accepted. So let's move the discussion clearly into the 20th century. And I want to talk about Mrs. Wallace Simpson. Was she the American woman who came closest to becoming a princess, potentially becoming a queen, um, uh, up until Meghan Markle. Tell us a little bit about that episode and how it was covered and understood in the United States. Americans were really hurt, not all Americans, but a significant number were hurt by her treatment. They felt that the British press had been unfair to her, um, and and it became quite a personal issue, actually, Um which is fascinating. So when um, George became king, he and Elizabeth had to, this is Queen Elizabeth's father and mother, they had to do quite a bit of work, actually, to repair relations. So between 1936 and 1939, when George and Elizabeth visit FDR, who invites them to Hyde Park, I mean, that's that marks a real sea change. The role of the royal family in that kind of very high stakes diplomacy that Britain was engaged in at the start of the Second World War as the 
government in Britain tried to persuade the United States to join the war. Tell us, was the royal family an asset to British diplomacy in those years? Clearly, this is what the press in Britain thought was the case. They were, in the visit in 1939, just before the war broke out, they were instructed by the Foreign Office on the way to address this political subject with Roosevelt. And uh, there wasn't anything specific that came out of this, though some people think the Lynn Lease might have been helped along by this visit. But they were very successful in their negotiations with the American public during this amazing tour. They went to Congress. There's a wonderful picture of the two of them coming down the steps of the Capitol building. Uh, and they were faded everywhere they went, like uh, Prince of Wales was in 1860. It made a deep impression on uh, the people, both in America and Britain. One of the most popular plays on Broadway in the latter half of the 30s was called Victoria Regina. This was a play by Lawrence Hausman, famed um, English playwright, brother of A.E. Hausman, but kind of less well known now than his brother. And he wrote this play um, in the 20s and 30s. And he was not allowed to perform it in Britain because of the rules around royal um, performing royal lives on stage. Um, so he took it with an enterprising producer to New York, where it became the success of the season. It ran from 36 to 39. People did say it launched this Victoria craze in America. Everyone wanted to return to Victorian fashion. People described it as the anti-Macassar era in America. Um, royal furniture, people really wanted heavy drapery. It, it became quite fashionable again, and they wanted imports. They wanted the authentic thing from Britain. So Victorian retro chic in the 1930s, and was Victoria herself in the play, she is presented in a, uh, is she a, d- a domestic, is she presented in a domestic context? Is it about the sort of the grandeur of her role? What's the What's the, the sort of tone of her representation. So it's very much a domestic drama. It's a royal romance. Um, it, it kind of reads like a Jane Austen novel. Victoria and Albert. Exactly. It's the love story. Exactly. It could be on the BBC today or it wouldn't be out of place, you know, in 2021 as a kind of yeah royal drama. It read as a very traditional, very safe reminder of Britain's role in the world. Um, people at the time loved the fact that Albert was of German origin was really terrific material to use in the context of the tensions leading up to World War II with Hitler on the scene. And um, Hausman and the producers of the play love to remind audiences of the fact that this was not just an Anglo-Saxon culture, but an Anglo-Teutonic one marked by those bonds in the hopes that we might be able to repair relations even as late as 1938. But there were some Irish Americans who came out and said, how can we be actually embracing this queen and the history that she represents? This is completely outrageous. It's a betrayal of our own traditions and our own values. So there was a tension, I think, that was a, a strain that we can see through these conversations. Uh, Ariane, um, one of the queen's um, more uh, problematic daughters-in-law from her point of view was, of course, Princess Diana. And Diana was very fond of America. And um She had a very particular kind of relationship with Americans, didn't she? So Diana plays on these themes that we've been talking about um, that are longstanding and is able to 
it just intensifies with Diana. Americans have this romantic attachment, this emotional attachment to the crown. But for women, it's also been a chance to observe women in power and especially women on the throne. It's unusual in Europe and in the world that this is a country that has allowed women to be on the throne and to have the women around that woman also play such central public roles. Um, in fact, Frank, I was looking recently at your book and I was struck again by a quote you have in there from um, an American in the 1950s who was observing Elizabeth on her coronation. And she said, um, this was the first time, quote, that the women of America have found a heroine who makes them feel superior to men. Yes, it's interesting that uh, Prince, <laughs> Prince Philip has to walk two or three paces behind the queen or did before his death. Absolutely. And I think that's part of the fascination. And for Americans with Diana, um, she she feeds into that even when she becomes more and more vulnerable after 1995, as, as everyone becomes so painfully aware of her frailties, that just endears Americans and especially American women to her even more. This is a culture of confession. That's what Americans feel that they do best often. And so they kind of embrace that aspect of her and really celebrate it. Princess Diana, like Meghan, in a way actually divides uh, Americans as well. So if, you, if you're talking about the Harry and Meghan thing, as I was saying in the, in the little intro there, um, you know, it seems that Americans are either on, as it were, Team Meghan or they're on Team House of Windsor. Whatever it is that Meghan and Harry are offering and they're offering a version of royalty and there's a glad, you know, part of what they were resentful about is the apparent, apparently they're, child isn't given the royal title that they thought that he should have. Um, so they want to be royal. And that part of the, the appeal of Harry and Meghan is that they're royal. But it's a very different version of royalty. It's a kind of Hollywoodized, much more emotionally open, um, much more modern, you know, almost woke, <laughs> you know, progressive view of what monarchy can be. Um, but other Americans at least nowadays, are clearly reacting against that. And that's everything they don't like, whereas the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh are apparently are representing something quite different. Did, 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 is that, do, you, do you accept that? Is that right, that, that analysis? And do, does, do you see the roots of that in the 1980s and the Princess Diana phenomenon? Well, I guess you could say there's some truth in it. Um, the big difference, of course, between Meghan and uh, Diana is that Diana was going to become Queen of England as consort to Prince Charles, who would be king. Whereas Meghan Markle, Harry is sixth in line to the throne. It's not of any constitutional consequence whatsoever. And so that freed them up, in a sense, to speak their minds. If, if Meghan were going to be queen of Britain, I don't think she would have spoken in quite the same way. I gather rumors have it that uh, Prince Philip, when he heard about this interview, thought they were mad. That Harry and Meghan were mad. They were mad to do the interview. Well, I mean, whether or not they're mad depends on what their objective was. I mean, what, what do you think, Ariane? I think you need, they need both. The institution can't only go take the route of, of Harry and Meghan because, well, let's face it, Harry wouldn't have a production company if he hadn't been born into the royal family, right? He, his, his resume is fairly thin. If you move too far away from the tradition, the sense of dynasty, um, then, then what's the justification, right? You lose all of that mystique, all of that allure. 
At the same time, the institution itself does have to modernize. It has historically modernized. We've talked about this at different moments. George III, in his own way, was a modernizer. And so there's no reason to think that it shouldn't continue to evolve or that that's a bad idea. It, it does need to. So I think Harry and Megan and a lot of Americans would, rec- would recognize this are doing something useful. And I think Harry in the interview about the most valuable point he made was that the monarchy could have used them as an asset because Megan does represent something different. And when we're thinking about Britain's role in the world, global Britain, there is a role for Harry and Megan, I think, in, in yes. facilitating a stronger connection. I think there's something we said for them being in a part of a tradition of charitable enterprise. And as the monarchy lost its political power in the 19th century, or even earlier under George III, it filled the vacuum with social work. They do 3,500, 4,000 visits and engagements a year, most of them charitable. The Duke of Edinburgh collapsed into niceness like the rest of them, and he had 800 patronages himself. I've um, in of all the uh, obituaries of the Duke of Edinburgh, one one line that I read uh, which struck with me was was a speech he gave very soon after the Queen ascended to the throne, in which he said apparently to a, an American audience that the the monarchy exists to serve the people, uh, not the other way round, and so he got that conception very clear in his head right at the start, um, that the monarchy can only survive, and this is your point, Frank, I guess, about, about Britain being a disguised republic, but the, the monarchy only exists on public sufferance. Is that understood, Ariane, in, a, in America? Is that part of the way in which Americans see the, the royal family, do you think? I think that is more central to the British relationship, honestly. I think Americans have been able to see this more as kind of eye candy or, uh, you know, not that they are like all other stars or celebrities, but they're treated on kind of a more level playing field in that regard. If you look at coverage and the tabloids or, um, you know, they're not as distinguished, I think. In Britain, they have to make a stronger argument because of taxpayer money supporting the institution for why they should continue to exist. And as, as Frank said, philanthropy is, is central to that. Also, that sense of um, burden. The burden, I think, is something that in Britain people recognize a little bit more, that there's a, an onus that's placed on these members um, for their service. And what about The Crown, the Netflix series, So, which has had, uh, I gather, has, has had, um, you know, has huge popularity in the, in the US as well as in the UK, um, is there a, is this, uh, is this just an extension of the blurring of the boundaries between fiction and fact, between fantasy and reality, between a kind of Hollywood notion of fairy tale princesses and the reality of their constitutional position and the work that they do and the charity and, you know, this sort of constant interplay between the real and the imaginary? Ariane, do you have any thoughts on the impact of The Crown? I think what makes The Crown such fascinating and and good TV is less that tension between the ideal and the real or the fantasy and the reality. It's more that intersection of public and private. And I think that's what makes the royal family 
such excellent material to work with and think with. Um, there's no other family that has had to uh, live out their private lives in that profoundly a public way. So that these and over generations lives, that have had to do it over generations. generations, yeah, and to see people live out their entire life cycles in the public eye, right? It turns on the births, the weddings, the marriages, um, and again, I think that's why women have always been kind of drawn to this institution because these very uh, these activities that would normally be coded as feminine or domestic become nationally, if not globally, sometimes significant. I don't know about significant, but of interest, right? Um, in a way that I think can be quite validating. Yeah, family on the throne. I keep coming back to this, the badget phrase, and uh, that's why we can identify with them. These people are chapters in a sort of family saga. They have the charm of the familiar and, at the same time, the timeless. As Blackstone, the great jurist in the 18th century, put it, kings never die. Frank and Ariane, thank you both very much. That's an absolutely fascinating conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Ariane Chernock and Frank Prohaska. As Ariane reminded us, for most people in America who pay any attention to them, the royals are first and foremost celebrities. Yet their allure is conditional on their peculiar constitutional status. Meghan's fairy tale, before it went wrong, was that she became not just another Hollywood duchess, but a real live one. Over two centuries, Americans have been avid consumers of royal celebrity gossip. But they have also been more than merely passive observers. At least from the visit of Queen Victoria's eldest son onwards, the royal family has recognised the political value to them and to Britain in having American support. While Americans, in turn, have seen in the royal family things they have felt they lacked in their own society, whether that was a woman in a position of power, a spirit of restrained self-sacrifice, or perhaps more often the type of pageantry and ritual that is harder to accomplish in a republic. You've been listening to The Last Best Hope, the podcast that examines America from the outside in. The producer is Emily Williams, and I'm Adam Smith. Goodbye. <laughs>